Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 180, recorded on March 13th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. We're starting this week with a story that might have positive ramifications in the future. The Linux Foundation, with the support of Google, Red Hat, and Purdue University, is launching a service called SigStore to help developers sign the code they release. Signing code involves associating a cryptographic signature with a specific digital artifact. Think release files, container images, and, of course, binaries. That way, the person or entity consuming and using the software can check the code's signature to verify that the release is authentic and hasn't been altered by someone along the way. What SigStore enables is for all open-source communities to sign their own software that combines province, integrity, and discoverability to create a transparent and audible software supply chain. And SigStore aims to make that available to essentially anyone who wants it. And software supply chain is the key topic here. Yeah, with the recent SolarWinds hack, people are talking about the security of the quote-unquote software supply chain more and more. What do they mean when they say that? Well, the software supply chain is generally what the industry considers anything that goes into or affects your code, from development through CICD until it gets deployed into production. And trusting that open-source software has not been tampered with is also on people's mind, because face it, we're all using a lot of open-source software. And as Google put it, installing most open-source software today is equivalent to picking up a random thumb drive off the sidewalk and plugging it right into your machine. <laughs> it seems, I don't know, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, uh, but they're trying to get the point across, I guess. Uh, and really, currently, very few open-source projects go through the trouble of cryptographically signing their software releases. I mean, you think about the challenges there. They would have to maintain the keys. There'd have to be some sort of key management. If there was ever any kind of compromise, they'd have to have a process to properly revoke the key and inform their users. And it's not like the distribution of the keys is obvious. There's not necessarily a way that is just standard right now in the open source community. And it's really at present kind of up to end users, the system administrator or just the user of a box to suss out if something has been tampered with or not and if it's safe. And a lot of times it's getting abstracted away from us. You know, maybe somebody's working with NPM or another set of tools that goes out and installs dependencies automatically and it just gets more and more removed from user oversight. Yeah, and without a standardized process, it's hard to have standardized tools that can really leverage this. Plus, you've got, as, as you mentioned there, Chris, kind of the, the difficulty of managing all this infrastructure. That's just a whole bunch more sort of, uh, I hate to say this, but sysadmin work when you're just trying to develop some software for your day job and helpfully contribute it upstream, say. Linux distributions have solved this for a while at the package layer. Maintainers will sign a package. And that's great and works really well, but that doesn't necessarily mean it was signed by the original developer of the software. And of course doesn't include all of the software outside of the distribution's repository. So it seems like Google, Red Hat, Purdue, they've come together under the Linux Foundation to create a signing system that uses ephemeral keys that is backed by OpenID Connect and transparency logs that are going to be publicly audible. 
Yeah, I guess the idea here is OpenID Connect sort of brings in uh, who you are, and then they've got a system that you can leverage to to get ephemeral keys, use those keys to sign your releases through an API integrated with automation, so you're, you know, it could just happen as part of your pipeline, much like, say, Let's Encrypt, which seems like a big inspiration in this space. And then that just all gets out there. There's methods to verify it. And crucially, that's added to transparency logs so everyone can check and see and be aware when was that signed, who was it signed by, who's who's responsible for this, and has it been revoked. Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, this kind of sounds like what Apple does with Mac apps and iOS apps and Google with Android apps, you're kind of you're kind of right. This is going to be more approachable, though. There's not going to be any criteria to use the service. Like with Apple, you have to be a developer, you have to be approved, you got to pay for that. This will be a nonprofit process, a free service with no need to apply and, and join. Uh, they they want as many people as possible to use this, like Let's Encrypt. The better the better it is for everyone. The more people that use something like this, they feel. So while it it shares some similarities in its intent with the way, say, Mac OS or iOS or Android try to do this, it's much more open and I think, well, at least I hope, appealing to the open source community. I think that's kind of yet to be seen, Wes, as if we're going to really see many open source developers adopt this. It seems like maybe those who are trying to address users in the enterprise space would be the first. Right. I mean, you have to have a user base that actually cares and is going to take the time to verify things on the flip side. But yes, I think having this out there, at least getting the bar lowered so that it's easy to do, so it's possible to do in the first place. You don't have to learn GPG. You don't have to set up your own infrastructure and hire security engineers to keep all that running. You can just, in theory, integrate with SIGSTOR. That's the first step. The second step is people on both sides of the model actually adopting it. And, you know, you make an interesting comparison with Apple there. That is a crucial difference in that in the App Store, say, there's a, you know, a blessing of trust from Apple that not only have they set up this infrastructure and signed things and let developers sign and, you know, they're involved, but they're also saying, yes, this can be in our store and endorse it. And that part is different here, right? Much like with TLS, just because you connect over a secure connection doesn't mean you should trust what's on the other side. And this setup will let you be sure that that developer did in fact make this artifact, doesn't guarantee you should trust the developer though. So I think you're right that an enterprise use case where maybe you've got a couple, you know, partners you've got agreements with and you just want to make sure that even though you're using the open source infrastructure, maybe they still release on GitHub, because you've got these extra cryptographic guarantees, you can still get your software that way. Right. Okay. So Wes, how about a real world example here? Uh, the people behind SIGStore cited a developer working on Node.js uh, on a Node.js app and and wanting to publish to npm the package repository. You would just run a command to sign your app. This developer, your browser would open it up and you'd complete the OpenID Connect authentication flow, and it supports two factor authentication as well. And then a certificate gets issued to you to the email that you've provided them, and then you would upload and provide that to npm. So it's a pretty straightforward process for this developer who's who's just trying to quickly create some sort of Node.js tool or app uh, to actually get it signed and then supply that to NPM if NPM makes the changes. And then as an end user, when you go to check, you could even build that support into the NPM package manager so it checks to see if a signature is on file. All of that has to be built in, but their goal at SigStore is to create that infrastructure. Right. I think another good example here and one that you can see already kind of coming together is if you take a look at what open source exists already under the SIG store GitHub 
organization. And one of those is something called Cosign, which is all about container signing and verification. And doesn't that make a lot of sense? Sure, you might just want to run all your stuff on on the latest, you know, Ubuntu container out there. But you also want to make sure that you're actually getting the real thing. Luke Hins, the security engineering lead at Red Hat, said, I'm very excited about SigStore and what this means for improving the security of software supply chains. SigStore is an excellent example of an open source community coming together to collaborate and develop a solution to ease the adoption of software signing in a transparent manner. I really hope that is true. The fact that Google, Red Hat, Purdue, and the Linux Foundation are all involved in this does make it feel sort of vendor neutral, which does up its chances of success, I think. But we don't know when that success may or may not be just yet. It's still very early days for SigStore, although they do have some code already up on GitHub that you can start checking out and playing with and, in theory, using. I think there'll definitely be some time before we're ready to see it deployed to production. Hopefully, it'll be signed. Linode.com slash land. Go there to get $100 in credit and, of course, support the show. Linode makes cloud computing simple affordable, and accessible. Linode is our cloud hosting provider. Anything we've spun up for JB 3.0, that has been on Linode's cloud. First of all, they've got 11 data centers for me to choose from, which means that I can pick something that's close to the audience. But also, I started using Linode a couple of years ago because I just liked how into Linux they are. (laughs) I'll be completely honest with you. That's what drew me in, but what, what made me stick around was what great service they offer. They have all kinds of rigs, and I've got just about every kind you might need, except for I don't really have any of the really large GPU compute systems, but they have those as well. They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing, so they just focused in on it. Instead of doing like a hundred different things, like you'll see some cloud providers try to do, they picked a handful of things, and they just do them really, really well. And, and as a result, people recognize it. They have just received the People's Choice Stevie Awards for the favorite customer service in the computer services category, which is a huge category. That's a massive win for the Linode team. And that's one of the things I hear from the audience when they switch over to Linode is just how great the service is. But their cloud manager makes it easy to back up your system, take a snapshot before there's any big change. I like having the peace of mind of having auto backups. So that's something I turn on on all of my Linodes. I think that's really great. Recently, I had a guest that just needed to get a couple of asset files so that way they could show them to their marketing and show them to their legal and do all the things that guests have to do. Linode's object storage is perfect for that. I threw I threw them up on the Linode object storage. Then I generated public links, sent them off in emails, and they could pull them down blazing fast. Linode's object storage is also the backend storage for our Nextcloud instance and our PeerTube instance. It just doesn't make any sense anymore for me. I prefer to use object storage. It just works great to just use the storage as I need it. But there's lots of options with Linode. However you like to build a box, they have a way for you to do it. If it's a one-click deployment or if it's something you build from the ground up. Lots of options, some great choices. Go try them out. Linode.com slash LAN. See what I've been talking about? Get that $100 credit and you support the show. It's a great way to learn and try and support one of your favorite podcasts. Linode.com slash LAN. Well, it looks like the rumors were true. Zeus is targeting a pre-summer initial public offering and a deal that may value the private equity-backed company at more than $9 billion. 
Seuss, founded in 1992, was of course acquired two years ago by EQT from Microfocus for $2.5 billion, and since then has strengthened its portfolio, especially in the cloud, with acquisitions such as that of Rancher Labs last July for $600 million. Yeah, we've really seen them refine their business model, focus more on the cloud, bring in Rancher Labs, like you mentioned, to get their Kubernetes uh, operation, I suppose, under under one house. You got to get your Kubernetes fix. Yeah, well, you got to have your Kubernetes play and you got to have all of that for this cloud stuff. But it really actually seems to have worked out for them. Their revenue has been increasing. And this seems like the natural result of an investment firm buying them? Like, where was that? Where else was this going to go, right? Yeah, either it's going to go public or they're going to pawn it off on the next guy, which has kind of been what's been happening, right? Yeah. Maybe that means this, there'll be a period of relative stability for Seuss, at least if the financials are healthy, but it's it's hard to say with this one. $8.4 billion or $9.5 billion, somewhere in that range, would be a pretty nice return. Uh, on what they paid for uh, Seuss. So that'd be pretty good. Uh, And, you know, I've been reading the reactions this week online to this because this has been slow dripped. We saw a a rumor like this about three months ago, but this is coming from multiple sources now and appears that they're targeting a May-ish kickoff. And I think the number one concern I have seen is what does this mean for Tumbleweed? Because, you know, once they become an I, once they once they become a public company, Wes, they're going to be all serious. They're going to be all about that revenue. And people are worried they're going to cut off Tumbleweed. Yeah, it reminds me, this has kind of always been an open question around Red Hat of, you know, all right, how legitimately do you view your open source contributions actually contributing to your bottom line and being an essential part? Or how much do your shareholders agree with that? And that will definitely be a concern for Seuss. Now, you've got to think that their huge investment with Linux and their history will go a long way here. But, hey, it's up to the market at the end of the day. And I would not be surprised if the acquisition of Rancher Labs was really all kind of getting this lined up. Because in this Reuters article, they report that this has been in the works since well into 2020. That this was something that they've been planning to do for a while and I, I could see them lining things up, positioning the brand as more of a, a cloud-ready brand, and then just kind of letting the revenue come in the door, get all of the numbers looking good, and then make this move. But it's funny that it's um that it keeps kind of like sneaking up on us. Instead of just happening, we keep getting these little bits of leaks over time. Clearly, there are some interested parties out there, although I doubt I'll see you investing in this particular stock. Well, speaking of Seuss, one of their developers is queuing up a virtual sound driver for Vert.io. And these Vert.io drivers are pretty special. Yeah, Vert.io drivers are para-virtualized drivers for KVM and Linux that enable direct access to devices and peripherals instead of using slower emulated access. And this driver in particular implements the Vert.io sound device specification, which was proposed last year for cases where having audio is needed, but device pass-through or device emulation don't meet the job. Yeah, this is interesting, and I could definitely see a future where I'm building a virtual machine that would take advantage of this. Unrelated, but yet I still see a future where I'm going to use these things together. GNOME 40's version of Mutter is introducing headless native backend, which includes virtual monitors. Now, what this really means is that in software, you can spin up virtual monitors and do stuff to them. But 
It could mean also long-term on a server, if you needed a graphical session for some reason, you could spin up a virtual monitor. Well, now, imagine a headless virtual machine that you could spin up a virtual monitor and have a virtual sound card. I mean, you're just seeing where this is going, of course. It's it's a lot of fun and shenanigans when I'm on my ginormous arm-powered workstation emulating the x86 past. <laughs> These are both exactly those kinds of Linux features where, okay, right now, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly how I might take advantage of them, but down the road, I'll be in a pinch. I'll be trying to come up with some crazy solution, and it's these two things that are going to save my butt. Linux.ting.com. It's never been a better time to try out Ting. If you're budget-minded, they have Ting's Set 5 plan for $25 a month. You get unlimited talk and text. Yes, I said unlimited. 5 gigabytes of LTE or 5G data, which you can use as a hotspot. Nationwide LTE coverage. 5G wherever available. No contracts. Yes, 5G with no contracts. Yes. And if you use 2 gigs or 20 gigs, whatever it is, Ting's got the perfect plan for you. But if you know how to like sync your music and sync your podcasts on Wi-Fi before you hit the road, you could really save some money. When you go to linux.ting.com, you'll get 25 bucks to work with. Well, some of these Ting plans, they cost less than $25 a month, and every single Ting plan gets access to their award-winning customer service and three LTE networks to choose from. I'm on Verizon at the moment, but I love knowing that there's other ones to move to if I happen to go somewhere where the coverage might be different. And you know me, I love the freedom of no contracts. There's a plan that fits every user and three great networks to choose from. It's simple to switch to Ting and with all those networks. That means just about all phones are going to work with Ting. So go to linux.ting.com to check your current phone, create an account, and pick the plan that's right for you. Everything lines up, Ting will send you a SIM card. Or you can buy one from Ting directly. There's kind of all the options in the world, whatever works best for you. But just get a sense by going to linux.ting.com. Get started by going there, linux.ting.com. Cutting your phone bill in half has never been easier with Ting's brand new plans. Go check them out. It's the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here, and you could save a lot. It's never been a better time to switch to Ting. I've been a customer for a long time, and it truly is the best time. So go get $25, support the show, and check them out. linux.ting.com. It's been a long time coming, but it finally looks like there's a new version of Grub on the horizon. Grub 2.06 was originally anticipated for release in 2020, but then the boothole security vulnerability foiled those plans. But this week on Friday, Grub 2.06-RC1 was released by prominent Grub developer Daniel Kipper of Oracle. Oracle, of all places, Wes. Yeah, he's been there for a bit. And this is great to see because you may have noticed the distributions out there will sometimes just go grab the latest build they can and ship it to solve problems. And they're not actually shipping, quote unquote, released versions of Grub. But this release, 206, we're seeing that after increased cooperation among developers and distributions following that boothole security vulnerability. And this is going to mark the first major Grub bootloader update since Grub 2.04 shipped in July of 2019. And among the changes in this new version is expanded ButterFS RAID support, Lux2 encrypted disk support, and the boothole patches we mentioned, as well as other security work and a number of routine updates. This is definitely nice to see. I mean, Grub is a rather important piece of many systems at least unless you're using system deboot. Regardless, if all goes well, and 
fingers crossed it does. Grub 206 Stable will be out sometime in April. You know, thinking of it, Wes, it's another piece of open source software. I wouldn't mind if it was signed, but in our effort and pledge to keep you up to date on the efforts to get Linux on the M1 with the most minimal amount of you having to actually care, we have a nice summary of some recent developments of getting Linux on that new Apple hardware. Now, of course, this is a more difficult task than maybe it should be because Apple Silicon Macs have a boot process that is not based on any existing standard. It's a bespoke Apple mechanism that has slowly evolved from the early days of iOS devices. Now, the wide variety of smaller embedded ARM Linux systems almost invariably use the device tree standard. That's how most Android devices boot. Say what you will about device tree, but it's much simpler than ACPI. Interestingly enough, though, Apple uses their very own version of a device tree on Apple Silicon, called Apple Device Tree. This is because both it and the Open Device Tree standard are actually based on the open firmware specification, which is how many PowerPC systems boot, including those old PowerPC Macs. The Apple legacy. Exactly. So, to adapt the Apple world into a device tree world, Asahi Linux are developing M1N1, a bootloader for Apple Silicon machines. What will this look like in a new M1N1 world? Well, first you'll have the hardware, it'll start up, it will boot M1N1, which will in turn boot U-Boot, the regular ARM bootloader that seems to be very popular, which will then boot Grub, which I suppose us desktop Linux users are more familiar with, and finally, if everything else goes well, Linux. I do love that there's a little bit of grub in there. And the other thing that M1N1 will do is it will get information from Apple's iBoot system and help set up the frame buffer for that early stuff. It turns out, too, that these new M1 Macs actually have a serial port on them. Yeah, although it's just not quite where you would expect it. It's tucked into the USB-C port, and you have to do some fancy data magic over the USB-C power protocol. <laughs> and when you send the right signals, you get access to a serial port on these old Macs. <laughs> Can I just say I'm glad Hector Martin and co. are the people figuring this out and not me. Yeah, and it's good to see that getting done. And they're upstreaming. You know, that's always a thing we like to note. And this could be a great way for people to keep these old Macs when people retire them, keep them running, or maybe even get them running on new machines. I don't know about that. But the Corellium folks, that's the other team who are also working on getting their their work they had done for iPads working for M1 desktop machines. And it seems they've made some good progress. They now have Ethernet working on the Mac Mini and Wi-Fi working in general on the M1s. So that's a pretty big accomplishment for Corellium as well. Let's see that stuff get upstream now. That would be great. Very impressive indeed, but as you say, upstreaming, and then later downstreaming into a distro I might actually use, that'll be the real test to my mind. I don't think I'll be buying an M1 to run Linux on just yet. Yeah, in the meantime, Wes, you can just save up all your Doge, and everyone else can go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Join Coder Radio's Coder Happy Hour every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. As for us, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Coder Radio.